All right, it is the week of August 15th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we've got to have a conversation about fighter pay, specifically Luke Rockhold's comments, Dana White's interview with GQ, his reaction to a story uh, by Mark Ramundi on ESPN, following his comments, Francis Ngannou, lots of stuff going around we've got to discuss about fighter pay. Uh, then we're going to talk about barriers to entry in the MMA industry. Dana White keeps saying, if you don't like fighter pay, if you don't like all this stuff, you can go start your own promotion. It's a simple answer. It's something he says all the time. We're going to look into how simple it really is for someone to start an MMA promotion to make it be lucrative, all that fun stuff. Uh, Then we're going to talk Endeavor earnings call. They had their earnings call this past week. Lots of good information that came out of that specifically around the UFC. Uh, We've got to talk Brazil's new Fight Pass deal. They are going direct to consumer. It's got a lot of ramifications. We'll dive into that pretty in depth. And then lastly, we're going to talk about one championship going possibly for an IPO. So lots to unpack and unravel there. So as always, timestamps at the bottom. And let's go ahead and dive right in. So first thing we're going to talk about today is, of course, a topic we love covering on the Fight Business Podcast, and that is fighter pay. But these past couple of weeks, we've had a lot of news go by about this, um, and we, we frankly have to address it. Luke Rockhold, most recently, uh, during his fighter day, fighter day interview. All right, so let's dive into a topic we're very fond of here at the FBP, and that is fighter pay. Luke Rockhold, if you did not see his virtual media, or it wasn't virtual, damn it. All right. First thing we're going to talk about today and we're going to dive into is, you know what? No, I'm going to do this instead. Um, All 
All right, first thing we got to cover today is a topic we are very fond of here at the FPP, and that is fighter pay. Most recently, over the past two weeks, there's been a lot of discussion around it. Um, Luke Rockhold, during his media day interview for UFC 278, just went in on the UFC and Dana White, uh, talking about how the 50K bonuses should you know, it's been around forever. They should be changed. Uh, how the, they're letting Dana run the show, how fighters aren't getting a piece of the pie, that healthcare should be included, all this stuff. For what it's worth, the UFC did not put up Luke Rockhold's interview with the rest of the fighter interviews for Media Day. So obviously, someone saw that, didn't care for it, and kind of did that. Going back a little bit now, uh, Dana White did do a GQ interview where he basically got on YouTube is all all pretty much staged it looked like uh, somebody pointed out that the Twitter user that he was answering the question to um that's a bad shoot All right, so first thing we have to talk about today is a subject we're very fond of over here at the FBP, and that is fighter pay. Um, specifically with the UFC, this past week and a half, two weeks, there's been a lot of conversation um, we need to dive into. Most recently, you have Luke Rockhold during his UFC 278 Media Day just kind of rip into the promotion and Dana White um, say that fighters you know, should be getting more of the pie, they should have healthcare taken care of, that the 50K bonuses have been around forever and that's not enough as revenue's been growing for the UFC. He just laid into them. UFC, of course, didn't give any official comment to this, at least as of late, but it is noteworthy that they put up the rest of the fighter interviews, right? They had um, everybody else at 278 in the main car. They did interviews with and they put up all of those interviews they did not put up luke rockholds that kind of speaks for itself right now prior to this dana white had done one of those cutesy videos where he answers questions on the internet for gq it's all staged right somebody pointed out that um, the fighter pay question in particular that we'll tackle is from a twitter user that had created an account in june hadn't posted anything, posted that one question, and then went away. So, yeah, kind of, you know, leads you to think maybe it's not exactly random users out there, right? Um, but White addresses this question, which is, you know, why don't, what about all this fighter pay talk? I would like to get more money at my job too, LOL, right? in a way that sounds like it supports the notion that, hey, we, we shouldn't be paying fighters more. And he says, you know, you, you get what you kill, right? You eat what you kill. And that fighter pay isn't raising anytime soon under his watch, all this stuff. A couple of major outlets picked it up. ESPN wrote a story on it. White then has an interview with Kevin Ioli from Yahoo and goes off saying, you know, call me like these scumbags. They're just trying to take advantage of something that's, you know, supposed to be fun, all this stuff and rips into, seemed specifically targeted towards Mark, Ramundi at ESPN, if I'm being honest. Not 100% sure it's him, but 
you make your own inferences based on the information out there. Nevertheless, he goes in again on, on people covering this saying, you know, sit, sit on the couch and, and watch. Like, I believe the exact words are sit on the couch, shut the F up. And, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Another interesting tidbit that goes into this conversation is a lot of people reacted to Luke Rockhold's comments on fighter pay. Uh, you had several fighters talk about it. Uh, Julia uh, no, Av- Avila. Yeah, I know I'm butchering it. Alvia Avila. <sighs> I know. I'm sorry, Drake Riggs. Uh, <laughs> uh, stated, you know, that she had her fight canceled so many times, which she did nine times, I believe it was. And she was pregnant at the time and had to get another job just to pay bills because of the way pay is situated. Francis Ngannou talked about sponsorships specifically with the UFC, where he lost out on a million dollar crypto sponsorship because crypto.com signed with the UFC. And then it was a conflict and Francis didn't get any of that money. That's that's not a great look for the UFC in terms of fighter pay, right? You've got a lot more people speaking out. We, however, are in a cycle. And I've said this before, but I think it's important to reiterate, especially on today's episode, and when you have bigger name fighters coming out and saying this stuff. There are two things that always stand out to me when we talk about fighter pay. And I will admit that lately, especially fighter pay has been much more of a topic. You've had Wall Street analysts asking Ari Emanuel about fighter pay. You've had a lot more recognized name fighters starting to speak out about fighter pay, which is big, very big, Um, especially if that kind of snowballs with the sunset contracts provisions that are, are now in UFC contracts. That could lead to possible change, although... That's a larger conversation that we'll get into probably on another episode in terms of what would happen if you had a mass exodus of stars and champions from UFC out at this point. Um, But when we talk about this, right, the two things that always stand out to me are one, the name fighters that are talking about it, right, are former champs that are not completely out of title contention, but are unlikely to make another title run. I mean, Rockhold is not favored going against Paulo Costa. Um, He hasn't fought in several years. His chin is kind of deteriorated, right? He's been knocked out his last several fights. Costa is a hard-hitting dude who has a very durable chin, as we saw in many fights, although... You know, there was the Izzy fight where he got finished. But beyond that, I mean, he he endured Vittori, endured Joel Romero. It doesn't look great for Luke Rockhold. And even if he gets past Costa, it's not looking great if Rockhold was to fight Adesanya at this point. Right? He would be a pretty heavy underdog, I would imagine. Um, Anthony Pettis, right, talked about some of this stuff too, especially recently when he moved to the PFL. But he was long past his prime. He wasn't champ when he was talking about it. He wasn't right in contention. Uh, I mean, Francis Ngannou was the only one I can think of recently, right, who has really, as champ, said, like, this is an issue. We need to be talking about this more. 
a, a lot of times it's guys who had that taste of being a champion and then kind of saw what happens when you lose the belt, right? And kind of started thinking about like, you know, I was a former champ. I did all these things. I, I had accolades. I had interview sponsorships, all this. I lost the belt. Yeah, but I'm still a name value and I'm not getting paid anywhere near what I was as champion. That's when they tend to start speaking up. Um, Aljamain Sterling <coughs> has, has been another name. It's important I mentioned him, um, who now with the belt has been talking more about fighter pay. But it, it's kind of the cycle where a lot of the time it's guys who are just out of their prime. Former champs or title contenders who no longer are, you know, really considered in the mix for a title shot. And and it's possible again, Luke Rockwell, you know, goes out there this Saturday, wins a dramatic fashion. All of a sudden he's now in the title mix, becomes this whole thing. But regardless, it's it seems as fighters get older, right? And you could say more mature, but as the longer they are in the game, that's when they often start talking about fighter pay. It's not on that initial rise. That's important because a lot of the hungry, up-and-coming young guys in their prime who are more likely to make it into title contention, they're just happy. You know, they're living the dream, right? They're going on the run of the belt. They, they're That's their goal. That's their focus. Yes, the money's coming. It's, it's progressing, but it seems that they're a little bit more blind to just exactly how the system works. And then once they're, you know, past being a champion, well, they're champion, they're making really good money, they're getting sponsorships, they're getting the attention, it's great. Once they're past being a champion, then it starts to get a little less rose-colored glasses. And so I think that's important to acknowledge. And I think it's important to point out because, yes, we've seen a couple of champs recently talk about it but we're still seeing people touch on this subject in my opinion a little bit too late imagine if Hamza Chemaev was the one rallying for fighter pay right now imagine if um I mean who's a super rising contender I'm, I'm blanking here but um Tom Aspinall in heavyweight right imagine he he's the one champion championing fighter pay and all this stuff Patty Pimblett you know, despite where I think his ceiling is, it is championing, championing, championing fighter pay. Instead, he's on the other side of it, right? Saying, oh, you know, it's all good, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's a disconnect that I think is, is hurting moving the conversations forward for a union. Now, again, whether or not a union would work, there's a lot of debate on that. Um, I see both sides of the argument between union and then Ali act. I used to be very pro union. I've come around to more being more Ali act is the way to go, but either way, a collective agreement among fighters and a collective mindset of, Hey, this needs to change ahead of time. Still seems pretty far off. In my opinion, keeps coming up a lot, but it's coming up from people that again, are either on their way out in the UFC or are in their twilight years past their prime and it's not going to have as much impact. That's just my perception. 
Secondly, when we have these conversations, media picks it up a little bit, more so now, which is great. But these conversations, the same points are drilled in again and again and again. And they're still from the fan base, the majority of the fan base, a big pushback to it, right? Uh, there's still a lot of people that are saying you should be grateful. You know, I would like to get a raise at my job too. Uh, that was a staged comment. I'm pretty sure for the GQ interview, but we've seen other people tweet that out. Um, we've seen a lot of fans. We've seen other fighters say, come out and say, no, that's ridiculous. Again, Patty Pimblett, Molly McCann, um, Matt Schnell, lots of guys, Sam Alvey, who just was re recently re finally released. You know, it, it's one of those things where a lot of people still reject that notion. Despite the fact you have increasing evidence that maybe this system doesn't benefit fighters, right? And again, moral stances aside, from a business perspective, that's what's best for business. If you keep your costs low, it's better for you as a promotion. And we'll get into this in the next segment with barriers to entry, but it is interesting to me that when we have these conversations over and over, it's still not seemingly getting through to several fans, which is semi-expected, but then also fighters who have the tools, the resources, are living it for the most part to see exactly how things work. It's just interesting caveats to me. Will this change anything? Will Luke Rockhold's comments change anything? No, I do not think so, right? Um, there's no real catalyst for change. Talking about this over and over is good for awareness and good to educate new fans that are hopefully being converted uh, coming in from these pay-per-views and all this other stuff, right? Um, but... It, there is no real catalyst for change here. That is that is the biggest point I want to drive home with this. We will continue to see these comments and these discussions over and over, but we won't see change unless the UFC is forced to change. And we can examine that in terms of a mass exodus of fighters, what that looks like. Um, we can examine that next podcast. I think that's probably a topic I'll cover. But legislation is the other option, right? Where if the Ali Act was passed, or if you somehow got a collective bargaining agreement where fighters became a union, but even then, in order to be accepted as a union, that would have to go through the NLRB and would be all that stuff anyway, still have to go through court. Um, and you have the antitrust lawsuit, that still lingers in the background where it's just been sitting out there forever to just, just get uh, class certified the written order on it or not, which is bonkers over a year. So again, I enjoy these discussions. I think it's important to educate newer, younger fans, but it is a discussion that will rarely lead to change, if ever.
There has to be outside forces for it. Businesses will not hear these comments. They will not hear the blowback from angry fans, uh, from particular fighters, from you know outside entities, right? Um, we've had some bigger sports journalists you know, talk to Dana White or try to talk to Dana White about fighter pay. You're, you're still not going to see that really lead to any massive change. The UFC has kind of drawn the line and said, look, here's where we are. It's either going to have to affect our bottom line and put like our, and, and our per- public perception so much. It's got to hurt our PR so much that we have to do this, or you're going to have to force us to change through, a legislation slash monetary incentive. So, yes, um, I applaud Luke Rockhold's comments for, again, educating. I mean, he came from an emotional place, obviously, but a lot of good tidbits come out from that. Uh, A lot of good information and, and anecdotal stories from champions and fighters come out of that. That's great. But will it actually change anything? Yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath on that front. Okay. Um. Well, see how that goes, John. If you're watching this, uh, sorry about that. 
I'll give it a little extra space just in case. Uh, All right, next thing we have to talk about today is barriers to entry in MMA. So Dana White keeps parroting this line, right? If you don't like it, go start your own MMA promotion. Simple answer to the fighter pay problem, all the other stuff that we just talked about. But it's not, of course, that simple. When you start a new business something you have to consider, right? You do a SWOT analysis, which talks about your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to see where you stand next to your competition. But you also, as a part of that, are separate but connected, depending on how you want to run it. You do a look at barriers to entry into the market. And this, again, is when you're really going to, you know what, I'm going to, All right, next thing we're going to talk about today is barriers to entry. No, one more time. God damn it. Next thing we're going to talk about today is barriers to entry in the MMA industry. So as we've had these multiple discussions about fighter pay, Dana White keeps parroting the same line. If you don't like it, Simple solution, go start your own MMA promotion, go run it however you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds simple, but of course, it's not that simple at all, right? Anytime you're looking at starting a new business or bringing a new product into a new market and you're looking at go-to-market strategy, all that fun stuff, expanding your current products into a new market, you look at barriers to entry. And barriers to entry are essentially obstacles in terms of, oh my God, what am I doing? Damn it. All right, next thing we're going to talk about today is barriers to entry in MMA. Now, before we talk about what barriers to entry are, as we've talked about fighter pay, Dana White keeps parroting the same line over and over. If you don't like it, simple solution, go start your own promotion. That's something he said repeatedly, right? Of course, it's not that simple. Anytime you're going into a new market or industry, or, or starting a new business, you have to look at the barriers to entry. And what the barriers to entry are, are essentially obstacles to entering into a market or industry and 
really being effective. Now, these barriers can come in many forms, right? They can come in the form of legislation where if I want to sell a particular food product, I have to make sure that it is approved by the FDA, has all of these um, nutritional values and all of that if I have a certain amount of locations, all the fun stuff. But regardless, if, I, if I'm bringing in a... Man, how do I want to start this? All right, next thing we're going to talk about tonight... Hmm, nope, today. All right, next thing we're going to talk about today is barriers to entry in MMA. Barriers to entry describe factors that impede new businesses or existing businesses from entering a particular market or industry. So as we've talked about fighter pay multiple times, Dana White keeps parroting the same response. If you don't like the way things are run, if you don't like what fighters are getting paid, Simple solution, go start your own MMA promotion. Well, again, anytime you're trying to break into a particular market, you have to look at the costs of entry, any legal legislation that gets in your way. Those, those are barriers to entry. So let's say I want to, you know, sell a brand new food I created. I know it looks ridiculous. It's the whole thing. Example of a legislative barrier to entry is if I'm trying to sell that product in the United States, I have to make sure that the food passes through the FDA, right? Generally, not all the time. There are ways around it. Supplements is an unregulated industry. It depends on the type of food. That's a bad example. God damn it. Uh, rough. Okay. Um, All right, so next thing we're going to talk about today is barriers to entry in the MMA industry. So what barriers to entry are, are essentially factors that limit new businesses or existing businesses from introducing new services or products into a particular market or industry. Uh, they can be economic, they can be competition, they can be legislative, legislative rather, um, a lot of different types of barriers to entry here. Ah, man, fuck me. This is going terribly. All right. Next thing I want to talk about today is the barriers to entry in the MMA industry. So as we've talked about fighter pay multiple times, as Dana White has talked about it, he keeps parroting the same line. Right, which is if you don't like what fighters are getting paid, if you don't like how I'm running things, it's fine. Go start your own promotion. Well, of course, it's not that simple. And barriers to entry is a huge reason why. Barriers to entry are economic factors or business factors that affect someone from starting a business or using a existing product or new product or service in going into a brand new market. They can be government, right, and legislative. Uh, example of this is, let's say I'm trying to make a car, right? Um, if I'm trying to make a car, brand new type of car, 
there are going to be certain regulations I have to follow if I'm trying to build those cars and build factories to make those cars in a particular country. Usually there will be environmental regulations. There will be certain um, standards that have to be met for safety, all that fun stuff. Um, in order to be classified as this particular product, you have to meet blah, 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 blah. That's an example of government regulation. There can also be competition, right? AKA UFC. Um, if you're thinking about, ah, oh man, this is, this one's killing me. <clears throat> I don't know why. Sorry, John. Hopefully you're not editing too much of this or it's easy. Chop, chop. <clears throat> Hopefully. All right. Next thing I want to talk about today is barriers to entry in the MMA industry. So as we've talked about fighter pay multiple times, Dana White has said over and over, keeps parroting the same line. If you don't like the way I'm running things, if you don't like the way fighters are being paid, any of that stuff, go ahead and run your own promotion. Go ahead and start your own promotion. Go do that. Well, of course, it's not that simple, right? You can't just start an MMA promotion, have it be the next UFC and you know, pay fighters what you want, right? A huge part of that is barriers to entry. Now, what barriers to entry are, are factors that prevent new businesses or existing businesses from entering particular markets or industries due to various reasons. So examples of barriers to entry can come in different forms. Um, government or legislative barriers to entry would be if I wanted to build a brand new type of car, right? Let, let's say I'm trying to build a hydrogen cell power car in order to have a factory where I'd make the car and do all this stuff. I'd have to follow the country's laws and regulations about pollution from the factory, making sure the factory is up to code, making sure the product meets specific standards, right? If I'm in the U S there's going to be a bunch of laws saying like, you have to make sure that this, you know, is up to a certain amount of standards that it, it meets this in order to actually be inspected, be say, okay, yep, you're good to go. And then sell the product. That's an example of legislative type of barriers to entry. Uh, another can be just high startup costs, right? Hydrogen cell power cars. Again, uh, hydrogen cell power is something that one, I'm not even sure it's, I think it's still viable. I haven't looked into it in a long, long time. I just remember it was a thing for a while, but it's definitely a unique thing that's going to cost a ton of money in order to make right now. Similar to how electric cars were kind of a high startup cost because you didn't know how they were going to sell. They didn't exactly have a bunch of parts lying around for you to make electric cars. Thanks to regulations that were passed decades ago. It was a high startup cost and you had to have a fair amount of capital just to break in, right? Just to even have a chance of, of producing this product. If I'm trying to produce, you know, a car that competes with a Lamborghini or, you know, a Ferrari or something super high end, those parts are harder to come by. It's part of the reason you can sell them so well, but I mean, the design, all that stuff, it's a higher cost in order to make those. 
That's an example of a barrier to entry. Another barrier to entry, and one that applies to the UFC and MMA in general, competition. When you have a particular market that is saturated, it is harder for a new or sometimes existing company to come in and enter the market. Think about it this way. If I said, hey, here's $2 million to jump into the, um, you know, here's $2 million to jump into either big box retailing, right? So you'd be competing against Target, Walmart, all that stuff, or $2 million to jump into the, I don't want to say crypto because it's all, you know, a mess right now, but, um, you know, AI, that's a popular one, $2 million to do an AI startup. What do you think most people are going to choose, right? They're generally going to choose the AI. Now, again, AI would have high startup costs and all of that, but tech in general is where a lot of startups are right now. A big reason why is that it's a booming industry that has hyper growth potential, especially AI, machine learning, all that fun stuff. And it's not saturated by big names. Whereas the big box industry retailers, right? They still make plenty of money. Um, we just saw Walmart's profit go surging recently. And and yeah, you've got Amazon competition and all that, but it, it's it's still very viable to do big box retail right now, especially if you're on the lower price spectrum. Yet, if you were to try and open a store right now, how are you going to make money when people could go to Target, to Walmart, to Costco, right? It's much harder. You've got to take into account brand loyalty. You've got to take into account, you know, competing prices, the fact that they're already probably way ahead of you on economies of scale. There's so many factors. Competition makes all the difference. When it comes to sports, we've already seen this, where competition prevents new entries. The best example, as of late, is American football, right? The NFL dominates American football, just straight up dominates it. We've talked before about competitive advantages. There's cost dynamics and asymmetry in value, or there's scarcity asymmetry in value. With the NFL, they have scarcity because they have pretty much all of the best American football players, right? Uh, you have competitors to the NFL. You have the CFL. You had the USLI. Uh XFL tried for a year, was going to come back, then the pandemic messed it up, but they're coming back again, right? We've seen people try and get into that industry and that sport, really, that market. It's not really an industry. It kind of is, but um, we've seen people attempt to compete with the NFL. Yet, who here believes that if XFL is going to take over the NFL one day, Right? You think that CFL, Canadian Football League, is going to? No. Of course not. Indoor arena football, right? 
Another example. When you have a competitor that takes over the market and really hits monopoly or monopoly level just saturation, it's pretty much near impossible for someone to unseat them. Has it happened before? Yes. Um, I'm sure there are examples that we could find of that happening um, slowly over time, eroding away, right? All empires fall, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but generally, even then, a lot of those, you know, uh, a, a lot of those falls come from changing technology or changing outside factors, not like, hey, customer and consumer bases stayed the same. Technology has remained pretty much stagnant and we have a crazy market share here comes this little competitor and suddenly we have fallen off right it, it just doesn't it rarely happens can it of course um a lot of people were saying aew might unseat wwe in professional wrestling nowhere near that happening, although it was the first time in a long time, again, that we saw somebody actually start to really compete with the WWE on that level. And that was more of kind of some internal issues, which, of course, are all publicized and you're welcome to read about. But even at the worst, you know, head to head battle there. WWE was never in any monetary trouble against AEW anytime soon. If things had continued the way, maybe, right? If, if viewership really gained with this other product, and yeah, it's possible, but I mean, it, it's it's a rarity that that's the scenario. Usually when you keep a competitive advantage, it only grows. And it's a falsehood to think, hey, we have a competitive advantage now. We lose it because somebody comes in and finds a new competitive advantage that really wipes us off. It's possible, but when you generally establish a good competitive advantage, it only helps you grow the gap. And NFL isn't going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, they are a brand that is synonymous with their product, right? When you think American football, you think NFL. It's almost one and the same for most people. Kleenex, another product, same way. People think of facial tissue, it's Kleenex. Can you hand me a Kleenex? Even if it's not a Kleenex brand, but that's how big they are. UFC. I train UFC. We've talked about this multiple times, right? That's how big the UFC is in the industry. Now, because the industry is growing as a whole, or seems to be growing as a whole, it may have peaked. May I don't think it's quite peaked yet, especially thanks to to the pandemic boost, but because it's growing as a whole, yes, newer firms can come in and get a niche part of the market, but that market is very saturated and that's a giant barrier to entry. I guarantee if this was back in 2005, 2006, before the UFC had the name they had, White wouldn't be saying, go start your own promotion, go do this stuff, right? There's a reason that the UFC acquired Pride and Strikeforce, their two biggest competitors coming up. Now they don't 
really have a true competitor. You have Bellator, PFL, and One, all relatively new promotions in the grand scheme of things that are nowhere near the same level of the UFC. Do you have UFC veterans going to these places and and those promotions making moves, raising money to, you know, kind of try and make a, a cut out part of the UFC's market share? Yeah, of course. But you don't have anyone really competing with the UFC on that level where they're a true threat. They're a true competitor. As we talked about, you know, a month or two ago, boxing and the rise of, of, you know, Jake Paul style boxing and all of that has been the biggest substitute for some of MMA's biggest stars right now. Because they're saying, you know, I'm not going to re-sign with the UFC. I'm going to go box and make a ton more money. And that's an area that can truly offer compensation that actually exceeds the UFC. In MMA, at any point, the UFC could offer more compensation than any one of their competitors. They often choose not to because of their cost dynamic strategy. But they easily could. Anytime you see a headline that says, oh, the UFC couldn't match this. No, it's they won't match this. They have by far and away the most revenue of any of their peers. They are very much in the black. Yes, a lot of that money is going to Endeavor, but if they really wanted to keep someone, they'll keep them. And because they have the match provision in their contracts, right? It's pretty much guaranteed they'll keep them unless the fighter hits the sunset clause and truly fights out the contract or waits it out rather, right? And that's that's the power of the UFC right now. The barrier to entry there is extremely high competition. If you have the money, you, you've got to have a, a billionaire backer, right? Who really wants to go all in on this and even then, it's going to be an uphill uphill battle. You're almost certainly going to lose money for a long, long time. And that's part of what PFL and, and one is trying to do. They're trying to raise capital through investors, which they're successfully doing. But they're trying to get this capital in order to lure bigger names away to hopefully build their brand and have them start to turn profit. But even if they did, right? I mean, we've seen one uh, sign Roberto Soldic, which is great. They've, you know, doing the Amazon deal, making moves into the U.S. We'll talk about that in a little bit with the IPO possibility. Um, we've seen PFL make some moves on some big name UFC vets. Pettis, uh, Rory McDonald, who, yes, just retired, but still was a big name at the time. Uh, Shane Burgos. Fun action fighter signing him. Even if they sign all these guys and they start to actually get fans to convert over to their product and watch more regularly, it's going to be an uphill battle to just make a profit. And once they make a profit, 
they're still going to come nowhere near to what the UFC is generating. That's part of the reason you see PFL going like, you know, we're trying to be the number two promotion. We're not trying to compete with the UFC directly, et cetera, et cetera. That's things that they've actually said because they know that's not going to work. They know if they say, hey, this is what we're we're trying to do. We're trying to compete with the UFC, be number one. Of course, they want that in their minds, but they're not going to go out there and tout it because they know the optics of that. Instead, it's, hey, we're a different style MMA product. We do tournaments. It's all merit-based. This is a digestible format. That's what they focus on. They try and sell it as a different type of product because their competitor their biggest competitor has saturated the market so much. That's what you have to do to carve out more of the market share, hypothetically, right? Whether or not you can actually convert f- fans from UFC to PFL is yet to be seen in terms of significant numbers. Because people can watch both, right? Almost every hardcore hardcore MMA fan I know watches both. So even if you start to make those monetary gains, you're not necessarily taking away from the UFC's customer base. That's the barrier to entry is putting the money into an MMA promotion. What are your returns going to be? And if you've got the bankroll, right? Like going back to pro wrestling, if you've got a Tony Khan who, you know, has a billionaire father who owns the Jaguars and they want to enter the market, they can, and they would easily become the number two promotion, but what is your actual return on investment going to be there? And are you going to really make a dent in the grand scheme of things? It's much harder in, in that case too, because of the way contracts work in MMA. So it's tough. It's a tough scenario. And you can't just, do what White says, start an MMA promotion, pay your fighters more. What was it? Uh, World, um, World Fight League, right? We, I mean, we haven't talked about him. They were, he was on the MMA hour uh, a year or two ago and was supposed to start the season next year or, the, or this year, right? Beginning to talk about We haven't heard about that at all. I forgot the name of it, for goodness sakes. The guys that was talking about working with St. Pierre and, and splitting revenue, having fighter pensions, all that. It's It's... Dust in the wind right now. Haven't heard a peep from it. I think that kind of tells you why. So yes, barriers to enter entry of MMA. Low startup costs for the most part. Actually getting fighters. I mean, we've heard of fighters paying for themselves, essentially with medicals and all that fun stuff. Um, you'd have to get a license, right, in the particular state or states you want to just like the UFC does to apply or Bellator and all these places apply to for a promoter's license for an event. You'd have to get that. Uh, you have to do medicals and that's about it, right? I've seen a lot of MMA gyms host MMA fights for local shows. So barrier to entries, startup costs, not so much. Government regulation, some, Right, you got to apply for a license to do all that, but not not a ton there. Competition, that's what gets you. That right there is what really gets you. Getting enough of a market to turn a profit 
enough of the market to turn profit, enough share of the market to do that is extremely hard. It's part of the reason even LFA and some of these, you know, feeder leagues that we talk about generally still have fighters go out and sell tickets. And depending on what tickets they sell, they get a cut because they need people to go out and buy tickets and, and sell tickets for them. And they get a lot of friends and family of upcoming fighters to come pay to watch the fights so that they can be profitable. Market share competition. That's the real barrier to entry in MMA. This is a rough time. God damn it. All right. Next thing we're going to talk about today is the Endeavor earnings call. Their Q2 earnings call for 2022. They had uh, August 11th. Uh, some highlights from that that we need to talk about. Uh, Ari mentioned, Ari Emanuel mentioned that the uh, aggregate annual average value of their international deals continues to exceed a hundred percent. Um, shout out to again, Paul gift who just has a nice unroll of a lot of these points, um, on Twitter. Uh, you've got, um, you know, UFC selling out quite a bit. Um, ah, damn. God damn. Okay, try it again. All right, so next up we've got to discuss the Endeavor Q2 earnings call for 2022. Um, so a couple of highlights we need to talk about. Uh, Ari Emanuel mentioned that the average value of their international deals continues to grow beyond 100% of previous values, so more than doubling uh, in terms of media rights, things of that nature. Uh, they've had 21 consecutive sellouts uh, with a fair amount of the fans, I uh, forget the exact percentage, being from out of state, so that's important. A lot of people are traveling to see these events. That's a good thing to, to mention. Um, huge highlight 
and one of the most important ones uh, is that for the fifth consecutive quarter, Endeavor is raising their EBITDA guidance. Uh, so that means that they're essentially saying, hey, we're making way more money than we thought, and we are going to change what our EBITDA is. Um, not necessarily way more money, but they're if you're raising guidance, you're generally making a significant amount more, right? Um, and that's something that analysts love to hear. That means, oh, okay, that you guys are making even more money than we thought. Perfect. Um, and shout out again to Paul Gift, who always has essentially a Twitter thread that covers most, if not all, of the highlights I talk about. Uh, in this case, it's pretty much going to be all the ones I'm talking about. Um, uh, let's see here. In Endeavor's debt is at fixed interest rates, 40%. Of Endeavor's debt is at fixed interest rates. That's huge. Um, interest rates are rising, right, to combat inflation. We may have peaked on inflation. It's what they're saying now. So interest rates might kind of hover here and then look to cut eventually. But uh, if interest rates need to continue rising, and if the Fed has to do that in order to kind of quell inflation again, the fact that nearly half of their debt is at a set interest rate is very big, right? Now, 60% variable interest rate debt is not great, especially for the amount of debt that Endeavor holds. Uh, it, it helps crush their margins a little bit, but having 40% fixed is, is still a very good number in general um, and something that I'm sure they'll continue to point out if the Fed keeps raising interest rates and those keep going up for borrowing. Um, Let's see, what else do we have here in the highlights? Um, so this is something that we'll talk about a little bit more in terms of Brazil. Um, but uh, the CFO did say that they are expecting the Brazil model to be... Damn it, man, this is just a bad fucking day for me. Okay. All right, next thing we're going to cover today is the Endeavor Q2 earnings call. So Endeavor had their Q2 earnings call on August 11th. Um, a little bit later than that to look at this, but still important information that we need to talk about. Got to shout out Paul Gift, as always, who has great threads on these. Uh, usually covers most of the same points I do, if not all. I think today he covers all of them and more. Um, but just some important things we need to talk about um, from that call. First off, R. Emanuel stated that the international deals are still exceeding 100% in terms of renewals. That's a very big very big deal and something we will cover in our next topic about the UFC Brazil uh, change to fight pass. UFC has had 21 consecutive sellouts with an average of 40% of fans from out of state. That's very big because that's showing that, you know, live events are back. They're thriving being sellouts and it's not just, you know, lo local residents and big markets. It's you've got a ton of, people coming from out of state to go to the event. That's you, you can't do much better than that. Right. Um, 
to have 40%, that means that no matter where you hold a fight, as long as it's got a pretty accessible airport, you're probably going to near sell out. That's very big uh, for the UFC. They're still doing it in bigger markets. Um, Austin, uh, Columbus, places that, you know, they had had. Are you fucking kidding me? God damn it. Stupid fucking piece of shit. Uh, and I have to start over again. God damn it. Fucking piece of All right. So next thing I want to talk about today is the Q2 Endeavor earnings call. So this took place on August 11th. As always, got a shout out. Uh, Paul Gift, who does great Twitter threads on these, usually covers most of my points, if not all. I think today he covers more than what I'm going to cover. So highly recommend you checking that out. Uh, but some highlights from this call that we need to, to tackle. One, uh, Ari Emanuel stated that the international media rights deals are doing well over 100% or exceeding, I guess he didn't say well over, but he's saying exceeding 100% of previous rates, so more than doubling. We've talked about that several times. That trend is just continuing, so that's great. UFC in Brazil is a little bit different, and we're going to talk about that, especially based on some comments Ari made, but we'll talk about that in the next segment. Um, next, UFC has had 21 consecutive sellouts with an average of 40% of fans being from out of state. That's great news for the promotion, right? Um, 21 sellouts in a row, great enough. But the fact that you've got almost half of your tickets being sold to people that flew from out of state or drove or what have you to go to the event speaks volumes. I think they'll still continue in bigger markets, right? But that is definitely saying to analysts and your shareholders, hey, it's not that we went to Vegas, which is fight capital of the world, and we sold out. No, we're going to Columbus. We're going to Austin. And people are flying in to watch this event. It's our event that's bringing them there. And that's going to help them too when they want to host live events in particular cities because they can point to that for economic growth and temporary booms, all that fun stuff, uh, right? Every city loves that. Oh, the Super Bowl added $590 million of economic value, blah, blah, blah. And they calculate it through goofy ways and yada, yada, yada. This type of breakdown in gate helps that argument quite a bit. So that's great for the UFC from that perspective. Um 40% of Endeavor's debt is fixed interest. That is key as interest rates go up. Now, we may have peaked with inflation, so interest rates might kind of hold here or go up much slower than they have. We'll see what the next couple quarters really show, but um, having nearly half your debt, again, locked in at a particular interest rate is, is great. Given... Endeavor has a ton of debt, you know, 60% of that being variable interest is not ideal and will raise costs and they'll have to find ways to cut costs or increase revenue to offset that and keep their profits up. But it's still nice to know and something that they'll tout over and over again that 40% is, you know, at a particular fixed rate and they do not have to worry about, you know, if rates were to really go crazy, 
which some people said it might do. And I don't know if it will at this point. I don't think so. But some people were saying it might, you know, be a Vockler type of scenario where, you know, you have those crazy interest rates from the 70s and early 80s. I do not think that's going to happen. But if it did, at least 40% of the debt wouldn't be affected by that. Still be a huge problem for Endeavor, but a nice caveat that, of course, they're going to keep pointing out. Um, The last thing I want to cover from the call itself is that Ari mentioned specifically when asked about, uh, you know, fang companies bidding for UFC domestic rights. So Amazon, uh, Facebook, hypothetically, I did, I doubt they would, but you know, Netflix, that fun stuff. Um, part of that fang group, Google, um, bidding for media rights when their deal comes up with ESPN in 2025, you know, is that an issue? And Ari kind of shrugged it off and said, you know, he's not concerned about it. And and why would he be, right? I mean, he mentioned, he was asked about Amazon possibly going after the rest in 2025 at the fireside chat as well and kind of said, you know, that's a great problem to have, kind of shrugged about it. As long as they're getting money and doubling their rights, which if they're able to double international and then double domestic, I mean, that's, that's the biggest win they could possibly have. I think, um, they won't care who they're streaming with. They, they, I think they could care less as long as they're getting the rights increase they want to see. I don't know that they're going to make double domestically, but if they're getting a big bump, right, they're, they're going to say it's an amazing partnership. They're going to do what they do best, promote it heavily, all that fun stuff. And they're going to love it. They don't care. They, they do not care who their partner is, their broadcast media rights partner is, as long as they're getting the revenue that they want. I've said it before. I'll say it a thousand times again. They are a number-driven company. Numbers-driven company. <laughs> Sorry. It's been a long day. I say that way too much. Um, need to start recording this earlier. Um, yeah. They, they could care less who their media rights partner is. As long as they're getting the monetary value they want, they're going to go into business with them. And if anything, if those fang companies are interested, right? We've heard about Netflix wanting to get into live sports. Amazon is already making a push for live sports and MMA with the one deal. That just creates a bidding war. And that's only good for business. So those are the key highlights from Endeavor. Um, Oh, I did miss one. That's pretty big, I believe. Uh, And that is that... In, for the fifth consecutive quarter, Endeavor is also raising their EBITDA guidance. Glad I circled back on that one because that's sort of the biggest. Uh, <laughs> when a company raises their EBITDA guidance, that means there's a significant amount more of revenue and profit coming up that they believe it's worth saying, you know what? I know our price target was here. We're going to go ahead and raise it. And that's almost all for shareholders and analysts, right? The higher you raise your guidance, the more of the risk you're taking should you miss that target. You're basically saying, hey, analysts, hey, shareholders, here's what we are targeting for our uh, earnings per share, our you know revenue, all that fun stuff, and our EBITDA, of course. 
And if you miss it, your stock almost always takes a hit. If you exceed it, your stock almost always ramps up. If you hit it right near the head, it could have varying effects depending on what else you say during that time, right? Um, But the immediate effect of that is saying you're confident enough you're going to be able to hit those targets and then some. So we're letting analysts and shareholders know and you're going to get a boost and you're you're basically taking a bigger risk. Companies often don't do it unless they're confident they can back it up. Because the last thing you want to do is raise your EBITDA guidance for a quarter and then that following quarter, Q3, if they missed it, you know, by some egregious amount, that's only going to, you know, shake investor and analyst confidence in your stock. So doing that five quarters in a row, again, speaks a lot, especially given that Endeavor is far more than just the UFC. Um, I would say their content seems to be doing very well in terms of critical praise, right? Some of the shows that they're making um, and they're coming out with. Again, I've enjoyed some of them. Uh, I, I think they're making good stuff and that's important to that ecosystem they're trying to build. Uh, the live events are starting to come back, especially with the new CDC that came out a couple days ago, essentially saying, hey, you know, we're dropping most everything. Uh, things are are kind of starting to go back into a normal shift. So their live events should pick up. So the fact they're doing this now before all of that is in place is big because I expect some of their other properties that they own to become more profitable or at the very least uh, less costly in the, in the coming quarters throughout the second half of, of the year. So We'll see what happens there, but that's that's pretty big. So those are the highlights from the call. Uh, let me know your thoughts on any of those topics uh, that Ari mentioned. Uh, I think there are some tidbits there that we could dive into, and if you guys have interest, I will gladly do that. But yeah, I mean, another great earnings call for Endeavor. All right, next thing we're going to talk about relates to Endeavor's earnings call, and that is UFC Fight Pass in Brazil. So starting January 1st, uh, the UFC will launch UFC Fight Pass in Brazil, and it will be a direct-to-consumer digital service that will hold all of the UFC live events, original program, and any 
in all fights in UFC history. So UFC for a long, long time from some background on this has been with uh, Globo's Combate, which is Brazil station. Um, it's a pay TV model. It, it's kind of been where the UFC has lived for quite some time, but that model is definitely dying. Um, there's a lot of cord cutting going on. I'm reading this article from uh, Yahoo finance discussing this topic where, uh, you know, the pay for TV model is quickly losing subscribers. Promotion believes it is strong enough in the country to stand on its own. Uh, the expiring Globo deal paid UFC in the low eight figures per year. According to someone with knowledge of the contract, uh, UFC's expectation for fight pass in Brazil is that it will eventually generate roughly five times more in the high eight figures. Uh, you have Lawrence Epstein saying the opportunity to connect directly with the consumer is really, really important to us. Uh, though we have great relationships with broadcasters around the world, the reality is that our fans are our customers of the of the broadcaster, not directly customers of UFC. Wait, the reality is that our fans are customers of the broadcaster, not directly customers of the UFC. Okay, um, interesting quote there, but yeah, it's one of those things where um, and this deal was announced right before the Q2 earnings. Ari was asked about this on the Q2 call, and he stated that they're going to where the fans are and, uh, you know, kind of dodged a question asking about how the deal came about exactly, but mentioned specifically that if distributors don't want to pay what they ask, they have the option to do UFC fight pass. Now the CFO also said on this call that they expect the direct model in Brazil to be neutral to marginally positive in the first year and then improve in the long term. So that means 2023 probably, you know, barely make a profit, if at all, and then grow from there. And from what we've heard from the Yahoo article, go from low eight figures to high eight figures over the next five years. This is key for a lot of reasons, right? And they're hosting uh what UFC 283 in Brazil. I believe in January as a, as a result of this, which again, all makes sense. But a key takeaway here from this deal, we could go into, you know, the fact that global didn't want to pay what the UFC asked, which is basically what Ari kind of hinted at. Um, and that the UFC, you know, the comments Epstein made about, yeah, we want to go directly to the fans, all this stuff. But the real crux of it is, is that, the UFC has been consistently asking for double their media rights in a particular country. And we've seen several broadcast partners say, yep, we'll do this. All good. This is an example where they essentially said, no, the media broadcast partner said, you know what? We're not paying that. I'm sure they were offered like, Hey, here's what our rights are. And they said, no, maybe they had a negotiation. Maybe they didn't. Um, we talked about this in the quick hits a couple of weeks ago. There were a couple of companies talking about, you know, trying to get something going, but they, I mean, this was maybe the first time we've heard of since this, we've heard of the slew of, of media rights doubling that a partner wasn't going to actually double it. And so what the UFC did is said, okay, you don't want to double it. Great. We're just going to, 
launch our own service down there. And RE mentions on the earnings call, if they don't want to pay what we ask, that's always an option we have. That's kind of a veiled threat, right? That's essentially saying to every international broadcast partner, hey, if you don't pay what we're looking for, that's fine. We can always just come in with Fight Press and show our product directly and we'll make money. So do you want to be a part of this or not? It, it takes away so much leverage of some of these partners where you're, you're kind of got a gun at your head. I'm sure there is different, you know, depending on the country, depending on the infrastructure, the rules, right? Some of the, the market, the barriers to entry, because this is an example of, this is a prime example of the UFC uh, coming in with an existing product into a brand new market. So there would have been barriers to entry here, including competition, uh, I'm sure there's regulations they have to follow, all that. Depending on the, your barriers to entry, some media rights partners may have a little bit more leverage than others. But for the most part, it certainly sounds like R.A. Emanuel saying, you know what? Pay what we want or get out of our way. And we'll make money on our own. Now, are they really going to make you know, five times that over the long term in Brazil? I don't know. We'll see, right? But the fact that that's what they're estimating and that they're willing to go into a new market and say on their earnings call, like, yeah, the first year is going to be kind of, you know, a scratch. They've got to be pretty confident about it, I'd imagine. There must be some numbers supporting that growth. Because if they were only going to make a minimal amount in the long term, they'd probably go for a media deal that's not quite 100% of what they're asking from the previous deal. So that's a very interesting scenario for the UFC, a very interesting caveat that I found. And I would not be shocked if you start seeing this in other countries too, right? Um, Again, it will depend on the country. It will depend on the regulations, the competition, all the barriers to entry. But if they're low enough, the UFC is essentially planting their flag, drawing the line in the sand and saying, as long as they're low enough, we'll just go in ourselves. And that can't help some of these broadcast partners, right? Especially as cable gets cut more and more. The industry trend is already going away from cable and cutting the cord and going to more services. You know, do you want this content or not? It's a nice, nice position for the UFC to be in. It really is. Um, and again, five pass in Brazil will cost about $4.85 per month. So 24.9 Brazilian reals. Uh, with all live broadcasts produced in Portuguese with Brazilian commentators, service will carry all live 42 UFC events each year, original series, past events, and live fights. Um, in addition, UFC will offer select fights to Brazilian, Brazilian fans via free-to-air TV for the first time since 2018. So these non, those non-exclusive broadcasts will happen via band, 
um, which is a separate media partner. And the U Epstein also says, according to this article, uh, that UFC w was in the market for additional mobile and digital marketing partnerships that will further expand the group's reach. So actually this quote, we're creating a new marketing slash exposure exposure ecosystem that is broader and more efficient than the current one we have. So it's the perfect situation for us at this time. Yeah, it sounds like it because those free TR cards again are going to try and reel people in just like we've seen before. Like, Hey, here's a free, um, you know, when they first did ESPN plus and, and fight pass, like, Hey, here's a free fight pass trial. Here's a free ESPN card. And then reel you in. And now you got to pay for it. That's what those free to air cards are doing. And, they're looking for more sponsorships. They'll be able to probably have more negotiating room with those sponsorships instead of having to go through uh, Globo's Kabate because they'll be able to, you know, just have their rules rather than deal with Globo's specifics as well. Yeah, this is, I think, a thing, a foreshadowing of things to come. That's what I would say in international media rights. Again, we'll see. We'll see, but I... Right now, it's kind of pointing that way. All right, last thing we're going to talk about today is one championship is possibly looking at an IPO. Yes, you heard that right. So uh, this comes from an article in Bloomberg uh, that states that Group One Holdings, the company behind mixed martial arts brand One Championship, is considering a U.S. initial public offering after previously exploring a listing via a blank check firm, according to people familiar with the matter. Uh, goes on to say Group One is changing its legal domicile to the Cayman Islands from its current one in Singapore as a step towards a potential listing. Um, company plans to notify the accounting and corporate regulatory authority, the Singaporean regulator, regulator, as early as Monday, which this was written uh, August 15th. So, you know, coming up. Uh, and, you know, goes on to say the firm raised another $150 million in equity. In December, led by Guggenheim Investments and Qatar Investment Authority, which we'll, we'll uh, circle back to, and gave Group One a post-money valuation of $1.35 billion. Uh, Group One will use the funding from December round to boost its growth strategy, uh, including diversifying its content offerings and expanding outside Asia, which we've seen already with the Amazon deal and trying to go into the U.S., uh, no specific timeline for the possible IPO. And uh, Hua Feng Te, president of Group One, said in an interview, we're entering a new stage of global growth, which means structuring the company appropriately to take advantage of the various strategic opportunities ahead of us. That's a long-winded way of saying, hey, we're taking this money and we're doing cool things. We're going to grow. And that's really what, that's all that's saying. Uh, <laughs> so a couple things about this, right? Um one is is certainly in an interesting position because 
we've been talking about the one SPAC for a while, right? A SPAC would have been more advantageous for one here. With an IPO, you've got to go through the S filing. There's a lot of disclosures, all that fun stuff that one has done, right, for Singapore. They, they've had to legally. We've talked about it on this show, right? There's, there's plenty of documentation out there um, from mostly from John Nash. I have some too, where we talk about, you know, what the one public filings reveal in terms of their losses, uh, their barter transactions, all that fun stuff. But doing an IPO with what we've seen in the past through one is an interesting play, a very interesting play. Um, SPAC would have been a little bit easier to shield some of the numbers, right? This is, I mean, this is going to be similar to when Endeavor did their IPO. There will be a ton of information out there and they will have to abide by certain financial rules and regulations in order to launch a US IPO. It's exciting in some ways, right? With the Amazon deal and all of that, um, certainly, you know, on the surface seems to be okay. Like this, they're confident enough to do this. Maybe that means their financials have turned around or they have enough money coming in from different places. You know, who knows? But again, based on what we've seen over the past several years, it's hard to fathom this choice, in my opinion, right? I'm not sure. Clearly, they would have preferred this back. It sounds like that didn't take like they wanted. And they had some big firms firms behind it, right? They had Credit Suisse and Goldman Sachs working on them for this back. Um, so that's not a great sign from the outside looking in, that they had those two working on it and couldn't get it done. I mean... That also could be outside of their control because SPACs kind of fell apart, right? They were super popular again for a little bit, and then they just crumpled and died. Um, very quick rise and fall. An IPO, though, is, is a different animal, a very different animal. And unless those numbers have really changed from what we've seen in their previous filings, annual filings for the Singapore government, that's... A bold move, to say the least. Um, again, we don't know exactly what they're getting with the Amazon deal. One would expect it's around the same or a modest increase from TNT, possibly a decrease, although I doubt it. Um, then again, who knows, right? Uh, and we know they're going to do more events, right? And, and Amazon has the appetite for live events and sports, so... It could be that Amazon's going to back them even more in order to help them with their content, and especially a lot of sports content. But it is a quite a turn, quite a 180, if they've gone from what we've seen on some of their financial reports to being able to confidently say, yes, we're ready to IPO and we think we're going to get a good share price and all this stuff. Because IPOs can lose their appetite for a lot of reasons. Endeavor tried to release their IPO in, in the summer of, uh, you know, WeWork and all the other unicorns just 
crumpling in on themselves and they pulled it last minute because they could not get the share price they wanted, right? It's pretty bad. They then had to go back to the drawing board, do some other things, then release a new IPO and nope, you know, the market for IPOs was much better and they were, they were in a good position. The market for IPOs right now is not awful, I would say, but it's not nearly anywhere, you know, as high as it was in 2018, 2019, back in those times. Economic conditions are still very uncertain right now. The timing of an IPO is key. And especially given one's previous financial filings, I think it will be even more important that they time this right. Now, there's no timetable set, right? So it's not like they're looking to IPO, you know, next month or something crazy like that. But figuring out the timing is going to be so, so important for one. You've got to have enough appetite to launch in a meaningful way if you're going to pull this off. And again, maybe there is some brand new you know, finance is coming in that we haven't seen yet that will be revealed in the S filing uh, for the IPO that will kind of say, oh, okay, here's here's that puzzle piece we're missing. But if not, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see, again, more of those financials more easily accessible than how we had to grab them before. Uh, and... Um, I'm excited to see, you know, how this goes on the roadshow with, you know, is Chaudhry got that, that magic tongue to just sell and get people excited about this. Obviously he's going out and fundraising and doing his job. Right. But an IPO again, completely different animal, completely different animal. So it's exciting. Uh, now Important caveat, right? Without a timetable and the fact that they're moving uh, their filings to the Cayman Islands, that means it's it's very possible that they delay the IPO for quite a while and we don't see any financials for quite a while. That could be that could be a strategic choice here, but it's still going to be very crucial that this Amazon deal goes well for them this year. We won't see viewership numbers, right? It's going to be opaque as it ever was. Um, We won't see a lot of information we wish we'd be able to see. If anything, it's going to be reduced for a bit. But at some point, the end goal here, right, is to launch that IPO. I'm basically saying this as a preface that it may take a while. It may not just be a couple of months or six months. It may be quite a while before they launch an IPO. Again, SPAC was definitely preferred for them. I think that was the better choice. Didn't work out for whatever reason. The market on SPACs also died. So that could literally be what the reason was. But An IPO is going to be tricky for them. I, I cannot see a way that the IPO is not tricky for them based on what we know so far. 
And again, things can change overnight, right? Amazon deal for one is a big name. It could lead to bigger sponsorships. It could lead to bigger involvement and attract brand new crowds of investors that really pump things up. But from what we know so far, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And we also don't know what the appetite will be if they start hosting live events on U.S. soil, which is part of their plan. I'm sure they'll determine what that looks like once they get the Amazon numbers back. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a big growth move. And we'll see how it plays out. Again, this is another example of barriers to entry because they're now entering a new geographical market. Sometimes it's not entering a brand new industry. It's entering simply a new region. And the U.S. is, is the home of the all of the other major promotions. And the biggest one, the UFC. Will they be able to carve out enough of a niche here that it's profitable and they take away or at least get some of the mar- existing market share here? We'll see. There, there's definitely opportunities out there. It's just going to be a... It's going to be a very, very uphill battle for them, I think. But then again, I mean, we've seen PFL start to get better ratings. We've seen, you know, Bellator become profitable. It's there's There is still free market share out there. So if one can capitalize on it, and use it for an IPO, then that puts them in a great position. We'll see how it pans out. Let me know your thoughts on one's potential IPO. I really want to hear your guys' thoughts on this, especially the answer to this question. If they do IPO, are you buying one championship stock? Let me know that. Um, I, I'm very curious to hear your guys' thoughts and if that really excites you. If it's not, I don't want to deal with that. If it's, I don't really buy stocks, I just invest in 401k, all that fun stuff. Let me know because I'm very, very curious for your thoughts on this one. All right, and that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Sorry I missed last week. Travel kind of messed things up, and so we had to just cram a bunch of stuff into this episode. I know it was a lot, but uh, hopefully some good information for you guys. Again, let me know of any topics you want to cover. We'll probably cover uh, the mass exodus UFC uh, topic that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast. Let me know if there's anything else you want me to go over because I think there's a lot of topics we could cover right now. It's good business topics in the MMA world, uh, combat sports world too, if you want to go into boxing, all of that fun stuff. So until next time, my friends, get money.